Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So today we're going to talk about the Bunny Man of Fairfax, Virginia. This legend is also called Bunny Man Bridge to some. And that's because there's a specific location where this all takes place. The bridge itself is called the Colchester Overpass. And it's a single lane tunnel that was built in 1906. I've only been able to find that date in one place. Interesting. Very interesting. And we ran across this when we were doing our Urban Legends episodes. And we're like, this is really interesting. And then we kept looking into it further and further. And then we're like, oh, it's very long. It gets its own episode. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does get its own episode. And the bridge was originally built to service the Orange and Alexandria railways. And there are a few different versions of the legend that Amanda is going to go through. Yeah. So here are the different variations of this legend. At midnight, you can say Bunny Man three times, and then he will appear in a white bunny suit covered in blood. He'll slash your throat and then hang you from the bridge. Oh. Sounds Bloody Mary-esque, right? Yes. Anytime you're saying someone's name three times, I'm thinking Bloody Mary. That's where I go. Right. And you have to be at the bridge, I believe, for this one, too. Yes. So not like you could just do it in your bathroom mirror. That's Bloody Mary's area. Yeah. You have to go to this bridge. Yeah. She's mirrors. He's bridge. <laughs> yes. This bridge. Not any bridge. This bridge. Yes. Okay. So like, why would anyone do this? The huge. The huge. So here's another one. The ghost of an escapee from an asylum haunts the bridge. And he has escaped because he wants revenge for the murder of his wife and child. And he was living in the woods. He survived on rabbits and wore their pelts. And he left their mutilated bodies hanging from the trees. Some kids were making fun of him, so he killed them and hung their bodies around the bridge and also on the nearby trees. Gruesome. Very gruesome. To children and rabbits. Yeah, I didn't like the rabbits or the children parts, but I was like... Yeah, I was like, are you going to stop just at rabbit parts? I was like, you should probably not like children being killed as well. No, no, no. But when when we were first researching it, this is the first one I saw and I didn't see the kid part, you know, like when you're reading through it and you're like, okay, he's eating the rabbits and then he's leaving their mutilated bodies. But then like if he was eating them, would they have much body left? What's happening? Yeah, I took that to mean that there was more rabbits than he needed at a given time. Somewhere for fun, somewhere for food. Weird. I hate that. I hate it. Yeah. We have bunnies living in our backyard now, by the way. Dude, I look, let me again. It's time to sell you on Maryland. There are so many fucking rabbits in our backyard and they've got these cute little white tails. Yeah. And there's babies and they're very cute. So here's the thing, though. We adopted a puppy recently and she is a psycho puppy, which we're training. We're working. Yeah. From the breed that we understand her to be, she is a hunter. Fantastic. And now my bunnies are moving out. I won't let her catch them. I'm making sure that she can't. But they are starting to leave. And also my squirrels left. They did not get eaten. The suitcases are packed. They're headed out. I know. I know. I'm so sorry. Puppies. Yeah. Puppies will do it. At least she's cute. Let's go into another variation of the story. So a spirit of another scapee from a local but no longer operational asylum appears in a rabbit costume. He throws axes 
and chainsaws somehow at cars that have couples who have parked near the bridge late in the night. The idea that there's a spirit that is throwing axes and chainsaws. Okay, follow me down this rabbit hole, if you will. Da-dunch. Um, <laughs> if you were a ghost and therefore not a solid being, would the items you wielded as weapons also be ghostly or would they be full objects? Well, let's dissect that a little bit because in a lot of hauntings, right, things are moved. Objects are moved. Rocking chairs are moved, Lindsay. Yeah, but they're not the ghost's items. It's the ghost. This is the ghost tool for mayhem. You see what I'm saying? Think ghost of Christmas past. Didn't he like rattle change that were like part of his getup? So like, would it hurt them? Yes, is my question. Is it a phantom chainsaw or is it a real chainsaw? Depending on your answer, I have further questions. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds honestly, I don't know how one would throw a chainsaw without also hurting themselves. Well, they're a ghost. They can't hurt themselves. Why would one throw a chainsaw? That's a thing? I don't know. People do throw them. That's a thing. Okay. Yeah, it's a thing. So chainsaw throwing. Haven't you heard of that? I feel like that's a thing. Chainsaw. Oh, it sounds ridiculous and that it would kill everyone. Throwing a chain. Lindsay, please don't go into chainsaw throwing. Maybe I'm thinking of axe throwing is a whole different thing. No. It, right. That's a much easier one. Okay. Anyway, back to our chainsaws. Okay. Let's let's presume that the reason why people know about these chainsaws is because and axes is because they are not phantom ones, but are rather like real ones. Right. Because it's an actual threat. Where is the ghost getting these chainsaws? Probably like the department store, I'd assume down the road. <laughs> OK. OK. Now think about this, though. I'm on Lowe's website. I'm going to sort low to high. The cheapest chainsaw they have is it's like 100 bucks. It's $54. And to be honest, it does not look intimidating. It's neon green and, and, you know, the metal. But like, you're telling me that this ghost has $54.71 to spare to buy new chainsaws? Or is he reusing the same chainsaw? Because an old battered up chainsaw that doesn't even work anymore because it's been thrown so many times doesn't seem threatening. It seems sad. You know what this makes me think of when it's like throwing chainsaws? Do you ever look up bot scripts? Oh, yes, yes. Where it's like, he had a sky. The sky was very blue. It was his son. Where it says stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think of the one that they published around Halloween, where they actually made a little video with it. And it was like a chair of chainsaws. <laughs> yes. That's what I think of. Chair of chainsaws. I think it was a chair. But anyways, I love it. Do people throw chainsaws Lindsay that's not a thing I don't know why I thought it was a thing that would harm everyone in the like one mile radius somehow I don't know I mean chainsaws are very aggressive just as a general tool I don't know if I'd ever want to use one personally when reading our outline for this I did not think we would be caught up on this one this long really as soon as I saw it I was like I'm gonna need to talk about the price of chainsaws because power tools are very expensive and I don't understand where this ghost is getting real live chainsaws. <laughs> All right. Well, who could know? Okay, let's let's go on to this next one. We have a few more. Hold on though, just real quick. I'm sorry. I got to go back. So, they're throwing chainsaws and axes at couples who are parked near the bridge late at night. So, are we to presume yeah, that they are there necking that that's what he does to get people to not be fooling around is that what it's for is that our like yeah and so i'm guessing the origin of the story like a lover's lane kind of situation is like don't have sex 
Yeah. Or a ghost that is very well funded will throw a fresh chainsaw at you. I think I needed those details in there for me to be able to move on. Okay. He just carts, the ghost carts a whole cart of chainsaw. Yeah. Does he? he, Yeah. Because like, here's my thing. Is he just throw one? Because if he just throws one and it misses, like you're good. But if he has a cart of fresh chainsaws, not chainsaws he's already thrown, because at that point, they're just a heavy object. They're not intimidating. Also, is it very clear that I've never worked a chainsaw? But you have to like hold a button down for it to stay like, that's my chainsaw sound. Well, yeah, that's why I don't know how it would work when you throw it, because I believe that you have to hold down. What should you not do with a chainsaw? No. Okay. Throw it. (laughs) Drop it. I just saw a 911 episode, I think. Where the person fell and had a chainsaw, I think, in their neck. I do not like that. Yeah. Okay. I. I. Do, I don't think that you can. You keep them on with. I. I don't think you can keep them on without throwing it. So again, I feel like they have to have a really good arm to be able to one just throw a chainsaw generally, unless they're gonna like ghost it over. Do you think they ghost it over and that like they more like follow me here? They make a throwing arm. They toss it. They act like they're going to toss like you, like when you act like you're going to throw a ball to a dog. And then they just go, they just disappear and they just ghost it on over and then drop it. Um, I think that's what it is with their shopping cart full of chainsaws. Yeah, but like as soon as they would let go of the handle, though, with like the little trigger, it would turn off. I'm not a chainsaw scientist, so I do not know. So it's just this heavy object with like a blade. Okay, so here's what they do. When they get to where they want it to actually like hit the person, so they ghost it over. They then start moving it down like it's just dropping by gravity. And then right before it hits the person, they then turn it off so that it's on. Got it. And the impact of a chainsaw does actually happen. Also, if you're in a car, does it matter as much? Like a car versus a chainsaw? I think you could saw through a car like certain parts, perhaps. Yeah, but if you're trying to make it look like you threw it, I don't know if it would work. I think we might be reading into this one a little much, I think. Amanda, I just, just as a spoiler alert to everyone listening, we are in fact going to read into this urban legend a lot. We are. We are. (laughs) That's actually what we're doing here today. (laughs) So there's others that are also nonsense. So there was a school bus of children that was found and the children were inside out. And that he wore a bunny suit and the children made fun of him. And that's why he did it. Some think that if you're at the bridge at midnight on Halloween, then you'll end up like the kids and the bunnies gutted and hanging from Bunny Man Bridge. I have not been able to find any um, news articles about a school bus of children found inside out for some reason. No, I feel like we would know about that. Yeah. So here's another one. Adrian Hatala went mad at Bunny Man Bridge. She kills her friends, then is institutionalized, and then died. So another one is a little boy went crazy on Easter and violently murdered his family. And that's where the origin of the story came from. Because the Easter Bunny and would explain why so many children are afraid of him. I mean, have you seen Easter Bunny pictures? They're kind of weird. Sometimes they're very bizarre. And also, like, you cannot have an Easter Bunny costume with that's dingy. <laughs> You're just asking for childhood trauma. Yeah, yeah. So another one, another bus. In 1904, a bus was carrying patients from an asylum in Fairfax County, and the patients escaped. All but one were captured. In the area, people started to find dead bunnies, and many were hanging from the Fairfax Station Bridge. Interesting. 
another version of the original 1904 story, all but two of the convicts were caught after a Lorton prison bus broke down in the woods. Their names were Marcus Walster and Douglas Griffin. When the police were searching for Walster and Griffin, they found rabbits that had been dismembered and were half eaten. Following the trail of dead rabbits, they found Walster's body near the bridge that had become known as Bunny Man Bridge, the Fairfax Station Bridge. Griffin was known as the Bunny Man after this. Those are some very specific details. So we've got places, people, like specific people, specific names. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And another one. Legend has it on Halloween of 1987, a year this time, Janet Chaltier met her friends at Bunny Man Bridge late at night. She left a touch before midnight. And as she approached the tunnel, there was a quick, bright flash of light. In the flash, she saw her friends hanging above her on the bridge. She was then knocked unconscious. It's said that she lives in Fairfax within a few miles of the bridge. And each morning, she sits on her balcony and looks towards the bridge. So again, we have another situation where very specific person, year, and they're saying like the this particular bridge, right? So those are some interesting and varied legends. Yes. Originally, when we were researching... What I saw, and I think it's what you saw too, Amanda, was the 1904 variations. That's what we're going to call them for lack of a better description. And so those seem so specific. Yeah, those are the first ones. And then also every urban legend that we've talked about before, there's normally a reason, right? Yeah. There's normally a reason or something that it's based off of or loosely based off of. So we're also going to look into that. Yeah, yeah. So Robert Conley was an archivist for the Fairfax County government. In the 1990s, he worked as a historian in the library and people kept coming in and asking about the bunny man to the point where he got pretty tired and I think frankly annoyed <laughs> about it. And he was like, I don't know if it's real. He got tired of saying that he didn't know. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to find out. And so he wrote a beef paper dissecting the bunny man legend and provided it to local newspapers. So we're going to go through what he found, because I feel like this is one of like the best dissections of an urban legend that I've ever seen in like just like the research he did and how he got to where he did. The version of the story that involves Lord in prison with Griffin and Walster was posted online by Timothy Forbes in 1999. And that's the first time that anybody had heard of it. And that is the most prevalent version of the story that I've seen. Most websites where you're like, bunny man, that's what they're going to tell you. But there's never been an insane asylum in Fairfax County. Interesting. And that so happened in 1904. But Lorton Prison wasn't opened until 1910. Also, again, I only found it from the one source, so I'm a little bit suspect of it. But the bridge supposedly had not been built until 1906. So, hmm, okay, we're not loving this. There's also no court records for Griffin or Walster. Connolly also reviewed local newspapers from 1872 to 1973, looking for what he's going to eventually call a genesis event. So, like, what happened that inspired this? From his research, he found out that Fairfax County was a very rural farming area until the 20th century. In those newspaper articles, there were 550 mentions of killings. He excluded domestic murders and focused on murders that had multiple victims and those that had children. That was because, like, the common themes in the legend. Yeah. After excluding domestic murders and focusing on murders where there were multiple victims or had children, there were only three incidents. Right? He was dedicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, like, as a person who loves to research, that sounds like a hoot. <laughs> 
to like go into like records like that. I'm going to find the origin of this story. Yeah, that's really neat. Yes. So let's talk about those. There was Francis and June Holliver. And this was from February of 1949. Francis was 37 and her daughter June was only eight months old. Francis was driving with her daughter and her husband, who she was estranged from, and his name was Charles. Charles was a member of the local nudist colony, and Francis was going with him to see the new lodge there. After the family left the lodge, the car got stuck in mud. Charles and Francis argued. Then Francis took the child and left the car. Charles never saw Francis or June ever again. He spent the night in the car and found a ride back to D.C. where Charles, Francis, and June lived. He came back to the car with a friend and his brother-in-law. They didn't see any evidence from Francis or June coming back, so they called the police. Police organized a search of the surrounding area and the surrounding woods that included Boy Scouts, Fairfax County Police, and Washington, D.C. detectives. So they were on it, it sounds. Yeah. As it started to get dark around 5 p.m., they were about to give up the search. And interesting that they would give up after one day compared to now where in certain cases we're going on months for some of the ones that we just recently talked about. Yeah, especially when there's a baby involved. Mm -hmm. So one of the detectives realized that they had been standing on ground that was softer than the surrounding ground. Francis and June were buried underneath where he was standing in a shallow grave. June had been buried alive. And Francis had been beaten and shot in the head and in the heart. Charles, obviously, was the main suspect pretty much immediately. Fair? Yeah. He confessed that he had been planning the murder for three weeks, but his plans changed when the car got stuck in mud. Originally, he planned to bury them, leave, and never report his wife missing. But then when his car got stuck, he kind of had to report her missing, especially because two other people went with him to get the car. Yeah. So they're like, where's your wife? Charles was sentenced to death in 1950, but the conviction and sentencing were overturned after an appeal because there hadn't been proper jury instruction relating to his plea of insanity. Crazy. He was committed to Western Date Mental Hospital in Marion, Virginia, and he was determined to be insane. That's interesting because this all sounds so purposeful. So the next case is the attack on Minnie, Loretta, and Catherine Ridgway. So Minnie Ridgway lived with her husband and her three children in Alexandria, Virginia. And on March 4th of 1947, a man came to the house and said that he was there to see Mr. Ridgway. And the family knew him. His name was Louis Borsig. And like they weren't super close with him, but they knew him well enough to recognize him. He asks for Mr. Ridgway. When it's abundantly clear that he's not there, he beats Minnie until she's unconscious. Before stealing money from the home and fleeing, he bludgeoned Loretta, who was just seven, and Catherine, who was five. Poor babies. Yeah. Their neighbor heard moans coming from their home and went to go see what was going on. And that's when she found them. And they were taken to a local hospital. Loretta died the same day and Catherine died eight days later. Minnie recovered, which sounds terrible to like recover from that and then your babies, you know, my heart. Yeah, yeah. So once Minnie recovers, she identifies Borsig and is like, it was him. He was arrested and he was transferred to a jail in Winchester, Virginia, for his safety. He was convicted for his crimes and sentenced to death. He was executed just three months after the crime. Is that not like the quickest turnaround? Yeah, yeah. That's very, very fast compared to now, especially. Yes. Yeah. It's like years and appeals and appeals. So 
The last of the three cases is the murder of Eva Roy. So in 1912, Peter Roy, Eva's father, moved to Fairfax from Minnesota. He was a Danish immigrant and had purchased two parcels of land near Old Keene Mill and Seidenstricker Road. And it was a very large area of land. It was about 180 acres. And unfortunately, his wife had died and he lived with his youngest daughter, Eva, as well as his oldest daughter, Caroline, and her husband, William. Eva was just 14 in the August of 1918, and she went to tend her father's cows about 9 a.m. She doesn't come home that evening, which is very bizarre. And so her father gets worried and he goes to look for her. Because this was so unlike Eva and because they generally cared, her neighbors also helped look for her. Just 24 hours after the search began, Eva was found and she had been tied to a tree with her apron strings tied tightly around her throat. The county coroner determined that she had been, quote, brutally assaulted before being strangled to death. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So the coroner's jury found that Eva had been murdered and that the evidence showed that an assailant named Lou Hall was likely to blame. He lived about a half mile from where she lived. He was a 33-year-old woodcutter. A witness said that they saw him in the woods right around when Eva had disappeared. But there were other suspects, too. So there was 16-year-old William Wooster, who had been arrested for assaulting another girl, and he had just been released from an asylum. However, he was excluded because he wasn't anywhere near her home or the scene. There's also a soldier whose name wasn't released who had deserted a local military base. At the time... The base was called Camp A.A. Humphreys, but it's now known as Fort Belvoir. He was found in Charlotte, North Carolina, a few days later with scratches on his face and hands. He had freshly washed clothes, but he didn't remember anything that had happened between the time that he had left his base and had been found. Shady. Yeah. And it was determined that he wasn't involved in the crime. And as I was like writing these notes, I was like, I don't like the specifics, but this makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. Another one of the suspects was Ben Rubin. He had been serving three years for breaking into a house when he had escaped from Lorton Prison. Police in Washington, D.C. arrested him on September 19th of the same year for assaulting a little girl. On his way to the police station, Rubin confessed to Eva's murder. He said that he had found her while she was tending to her father's cows. He'd asked her for food and told her that he was an ex-convict. She was kind and said she wouldn't turn him in. He said that he got excited, so he choked her. Fuck off. Hell. Yeah. D.C. police were skeptical of his confession, so they tried him for the assault that occurred in D.C. first. What? So a Virginia investigator came to interview him, and they also didn't think he was the assailant, but he was still extradited. He was escorted to the crime scene, but couldn't identify the scene of the attack or the tree where Eva had been tied. At that point, he recanted his confession, and he said that Peter's presence inspired him to be honest. So again, Peter is Eva's father. Mm -hmm. So Reuben escaped from the jail in Fairfax County on October 6th. He tried to buy a pistol, but was arrested. He said that he had lied about the confession because he thought that it would be easier for him to escape from Fairfax. So his entire plan was Was to lie to get to a different jail to escape because it would be easier. And he was right. So Reuben was sentenced to four more years in prison for the escape attempt and the burglary. Lou Hall was tried, but was never convicted. His first trial was a hung jury. Nine pled guilty, three innocent. And his second trial returned a verdict of not guilty. And no one was ever convicted of Eva's murder. That's horrible. Yeah. So clearly, none of these kind of match up with Bunny Man Bridge so far, right? No, not at all. Not at all. But these are the things that he actually was able to find. Yes. So then Connolly found a different lead. Connolly came across an article written by Patricia Johnson, who had submitted a paper titled The Bunny Man, where she interviewed 33 students from Prince George's County in Maryland. Participants were 15 to 18, 
And the survey results are as follows. 14 different geographic locations. 18 involved the bunny man scaring people and or chasing people, mostly children, with a hatchet or axe. There were 14 attacks on cars, nine attacks on couples and parked cars, five accusations of vandalisms on buildings and homes, and three mentioned murder. Johnson said she first heard of the bunny man story around Halloween of 1970, so Conley searched for articles in October of 1970. He then found his first sighting in 1970. So let's talk about the sightings of Bunny Man. So one of the articles was called Man in Bunny Suit Sought in Fairfax. And Fairfax County Police said yesterday they were looking for a man who likes to wear, quote, white bunny rabbit costume and throw hatchets through car doors. As you do, not chainsaws. Not chainsaws. No, it was hatchets. That seems a little more reasonable. Air Force Academy cadet Robert Bennett told police shortly after midnight last Sunday he and his fiancée were sitting in a car in the 5400 block of Guinea Road when a man, quote, dressed in a white bunny suit with long bunny ears, ran from nearby bushes and shouted, you're on private property and I have your tag number. Then Robert also said the rabbit then threw a wooden handled hatchet through the right front car window. As soon as he threw the hatchet, the rabbit skipped off into the night. And luckily, Bennett and his fiancée were not injured. Good, good. But still, how weird. Yeah. Police said they have the hatchet, but no other clues in this case. And see, in this one, unlike the bat that we've discussed in the Vallow episode, this guy was wearing a bunny suit. So I assume there'd be no fingerprints on his hatchet. That would make sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So at the time, Bennett was visiting his uncle who lives across the street from where the car was parked. He also was in the area because he was attending the Air Force Navy football game that weekend. And there's no official report of the incident, but there is a police report from an incident two weeks later. So this was just an article that he came across, which this article would have to be backed by something, right? Yeah. You would hope. So the title was The Rabbit Reappeared. A man wearing a furry rabbit suit with two long ears appeared again on Guinea Road in Fairfax County Thursday night, police reported, this time wielding an axe and chopping away at a roof support on a new house. Less than two weeks ago, a man wearing what was described as a rabbit suit accused two persons in a car of trespassing and heaved a hatchet through a closed window of the car at 5400 Guinea Street. They were not hurt. Thursday night's rabbit, wearing a suit described as gray, black, and white, was spotted a block away at 5307 Guinea Road. So Paul Phillips, a private security guard for a construction company, said that he saw the rabbit standing on the front porch of a new but unoccupied house. And he says, I started talking to him and then he started chopping. Weird. Yep. I can't even imagine if I saw some random person with a bunny suit on chopping something. I'm pretty sure I'd die inside. Uh, Same. So apparently the rabbit tells Paul this, all you people trespass around here. And while he's doing that, he's whacking eight gashes in a pole. Weird. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to bust you on the head. It's not a very nice rabbit. So Phillips then said that he walked back to his car to get his handgun. But then the rabbit, carrying a long-handled axe, ran off into the woods. I don't like this at all. It's so bizarre. So bizarre. So the security guard said that the man was about 5'8", 160 pounds, and appeared to be in his early 20s. I don't know how you determine all of that when they're wearing a bunny suit. 
Yeah, maybe it's because he was spry. Maybe. So the Fairfax County Police Department provided Conley a redacted copy of the report. Six officers had responded to the 911 call about a person dressed as a rabbit with an axe. The case was turned over to W.L. Johnson of the Criminal Investigation Bureau after the Fairfax County Police Department didn't find any rabbit at the scene. So they're like, we don't see a rabbit. Here you go. Helpful. (laughs) Right. Helpful. Johnson visited the construction offices on Halloween of 1970 and also did not find a rabbit. After he left, he received a call from one of the employees of the construction officer working in the subdivision. The employee said that someone called and identified themselves as the Axeman. Dun, dun, dun. Right. I needed that. Thank you. You're welcome. Further, the employee said that the Axeman said, Mr. Blank, you have been messing up my property by dumping tree stumps limbs and brush and other things on the property. You can make everything right by meeting me tonight and talking about the situation. This is never the precursor to a well-discussed issue. Meet me at night. Right. And then if you identify yourself as the axe man and then you're asking someone to meet you somewhere, I highly doubt they're going to meet you. (laughs) At night. At night. Yeah. Yeah. The employee said that the person sounded like a man in their 20s and investigators set up a stakeout But believe it or not, no axe man ever showed up. On 11-4, Johnson got a call from a local parent who said that their child said they knew the bunny man. She went on to say that some of the children had seen or spent time with the bunny man. Creepy. Don't let your kids do that. Exactly. After interviewing the son and other children in the area, it was clear that they hadn't met him, but they had been talking about him with friends at school, luckily. So without any other leads, information or incidents, on March 14th, 1971, Johnson closed the case. His summary stated, after interviewing everyone surrounding the case that could have knowledge of any incidents concerning a white rabbit, there has been no significant information uncovered that would lead to identify the person or persons that were posing as a white rabbit. This case will be marked as inactive. Conley concluded that the 1970 events are the Genesis events, as Lindsay talked about, and that they are the true origin of the legend, not the 1904 event. When I first read that, I paused a little bit. I was like, this is one heck of a game of telephone. Like, how do you get from just kind of like trespassing and also not wanting people to trespass very intensely to children hung from a bridge? Right, exactly. And so, yeah. And so I found a paper that was written by Julian Hildebrandt Consoli, and he posits that the Bunny Man legend evolved from the mundane events to this gory story from being retold over and over and over and over, and that the embellishments, especially the gore, were the things that survived the retelling. He kind of describes it as like an evolution from this story into something much gorier, because what's more interesting? There was somebody who trespassed on a construction site, or... There is a maniac eating rabbits living in the woods who may or may not kill you. But that's true, right? Like with almost any news story, people are going to remember the outlandish, crazy stuff. Yeah. And then they're going to repeat that rather than the actual small details. Yeah. And that's why those get lost so much. Exactly. And so Hildebrand Consoli also cites Heath Bell and Sternberg who in their study found that when retelling urban legends, people often tell the stories that elicit the highest levels of disgust. And I think that's really true. When we talk about urban legends, and again, with any story, really, you want a reaction. You aren't going to tell a story again if someone's like, okay, you want your listener to be happy, sad, scared, motivated, something. 
And so if you're telling a gory story, you want the person to react to the gore. Right, right. So it makes sense that as it evolved, people would continue to like push the gore and maybe embellish just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. And so what's also interesting is current versions of the legend have pseudo proof and pseudo witnesses. And these terms were coined by John William Johnson. And per Johnson, pseudo proof is some sort of evidence offered to validate the folk belief or a segment of the narrative, but which in reality does not prove anything conclusively. And so an example of this would be a lot of times when people retell the story, especially when there's hangings involved, they'll say that there's bloodstains on the bridge. And this way, the person who's hearing the story is like, oh, I could see with my eyes if that's not there and I would know it's true. And because they could do that, whether they actually do or do not go do that, they inherently become less skeptical because it's a provable or disprovable fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so also, even if there were marks on the bridge, you wouldn't know if there were blood or not. So you could even take a fact that is correct and attribute to something else. And because the person doesn't know whether it's wrong immediately, they become less skeptical. And so another example of this would be the full names that were given of the escapees and the institutions. They provide an air of legitimacy to the story. So when we talk about Walster and Griffin, you're like, man, like there were names. There was a name of a victim. We had a name of a person who committed the act. We knew where they came from. And they were unique names, right? Yes. Yeah. It wasn't like Bob Smith. It was a unique name where you felt like if you went and did the case research, you would find it. And then Connolly goes and does the research and he's like, can't find it. Right. Again, it adds an air of legitimacy. Just like with the story of Janet, where her friends were hung above her on the bridge. So as I mentioned a moment ago, pseudo witnesses, that's when there's like names of people that you could go find. So in our 1904 story, the person was dead. However, right. So like that's one example. Right. But there's also the Adrian Hatala story that we mentioned where they talk about she goes crazy. She kills people. Then she's institutionalized and she dies. You can't really prove it. Or disprove it, because most of the time you're not going to find public records of someone being institutionalized. Yeah. It's unless it was through a criminal case. But so there's not a way to prove it. So there's not a way to disprove it. And her full name, again, gives legitimacy. Exactly. The other part of this that makes this legend so sturdy, for lack of a better phrase, is the localization of the legend. It's localized in that there is a particular place where this occurs. And it is particularly the Colchester Bridge in Fairfax, Virginia. That is exactly where it is. That means that people who live near it, they're more likely to believe it because they can picture the place. They know it. And when it's a place they know, the story is more potent. Urban legends without specific locations in them can often be considered to happen in multiple locations. Think Mothman is a good example of them, often in Point Pleasant, but has been seen other places. Slender Man would be another good one. There's also a variety of goat men across the U.S. And those stories don't hinge on a particular location, so they can be moved and you can find common elements between them. But here, because it's one place that people know, if you know that place, it's more potent. And if you don't, it's still a particular place that you can find. So Hildebrandt Consoli also suggests that the retelling of urban legends generally that would be objectively implausible can be attributed in part to loss aversion. And so loss aversion is a tendency for people to act disproportionately to avoid loss. And sometimes the person can know they're being silly and know they're being irrational, but they're going to do it just in case. 
So think, for example, I do not believe that Bloody Mary is a thing. But am I going to go into a bathroom, look in the mirror, turn off the lights and say Bloody Mary three times? Absolutely not. Because even if there's a 1% chance that she might come through the mirror and do a whole bunch of terrible things, I don't want to do that. Well, also, isn't that how some people see things, too? You know, like where they believe something so hard and they, they know that it's not real. But they're like, I believe it, though. Like in the back of my head, there's a slight chance of doubt there. Yeah. And then that's when they're like, oh, and then I saw a figure or I saw this. And it's their brain just playing tricks on them. Not to say that I don't believe in a lot of things, but there are a lot of cases like that where we talked about it in our, I think, ghost episode. Yeah. Where you're seeing things that aren't there because you're thinking about something else or you're believing something so much. Maybe you would see Bloody Mary or a bunny man. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Hildebrand Consoli suggests that folks retell the bunny man story over and over just in case they're wrong, because what would happen if they were wrong? And I love the idea that like, I think that's one of the reasons that we have so many urban legends. I think that's a very good case for it. Yeah, it's kind of a cool case too. you know, like it, it gets passed down. There's a lot of variations, but also urban legends are fun, right? I agree. They're creepy. They're fun. Campfire tales. They're fun. Halloween stories. Just Things to think about. All year stories, baby. Yeah, all, all year stories. You're right. You're right. I'm spooky all year. <laughs> but it is one of my favorite subjects to research, too, because as we've picked through what we've done, a handful of urban legend episodes already. Many, many. We've gone through and we're like, well, here's what we know about the story. And then we look and we're like, oh, my goodness, there's like 15 different versions. Yeah. And this one's a lot more gruesome than I grew up with. But that's like the new common one. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, it, it is. It, I think they're super fun to listen to. They're super fun to research. Also, if you are new to listening to True Creeps, welcome, first and foremost. But secondly, if you are loving the show, and we hope that you are, we would very much appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe. You can do this on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave a review on our Facebook as well. If you do and take a screenshot and send us your mailing address, we will send you a lovely and amazing sticker in return to show our appreciation. We also have a Patreon and a merch store if you're so inclined. Yeah. And our merch store is through Public, So you can just look up True Creeps. We have our links also on our website. But Public has sales all the time. Just saying. We have some cute shirts. Yeah, we do. And with that, have a good weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 